Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Allow me to get you up to speed. Tariff man making a comeback, hitting Argentina and Brazil with steel levies and then retaliating against France's digital tax with a threat to slap tariffs on $2.4 billion of French goods. France then retaliating, threatening to retaliate against America's threat of retaliation against France. Are you confused? So am I. It all comes just 12 days from a deadline before the White House hits China with another round of trade penalties. The president telling reporters in London this morning that you might have to wait a whole lot longer for a deal. I have no deadline, no. In some ways, I think it's better to wait till after the election. You want to know the truth? I think in some ways it's better to wait till after the election with China. Equity futures dropping off the back of that. The S&P 500 down by a quarter of 1%. Tom Keane, you might have to wait until after 2020. It was really sudden, three headlines in a row, and we've come back a little bit, but I'll tell you, there was an immediate reaction to that headline on China. This was two-thirds of the way through this extraordinary uh, press conference. I thought Mr. Stoltenberg was there as well of NATO, and he sat and sat and sat while the president went. It, It was a press conference. 40 minutes it lasted, that conversation. And a whole lot more coming up through the day, Lisa. A series of bilaterals between the president and NATO leaders and trade very much the focus at the moment. Look out 9 a.m. Eastern, the French president and the U.S. leader sitting down together in a bilateral that I think is going to get a whole lot more attention. The key question to me this morning is how much optimism still is baked into the market uh, based on the idea that we would get some sort of deal between the U.S. and China by year end? Because, yes, you are seeing stocks turn negative, but not that negative. And, yes, we saw a sell-off that was the biggest in, in uh, since October yesterday, but... We had been making new highs day after day after day. There still is so much enthusiasm built into stocks. It, how, how, how far does it have to go to be unwound at this point? Let's bring in Troy Gaeski, shall we, of Skybridge, dropping by the studio here in New York. Troy, great to see you. Great to see you too, John. How do you digest the last 24 hours? It's getting a little bit messy out there. Yeah, well, I think the two narratives that have uh, started to break, uh, the first on trade, right? So we've had a narrative develop where, you know, Phase one trade deals pretty much done. Obviously, it'll be face saving, nothing really substantive, but but at least it doesn't escalate further. And you know whether you look at Brazil, Argentina, now France, and you know the talk of it going past 2020. Clearly, there is risk again of it escalating further. You know, secondarily, and this is another big narrative, was that global manufacturing was bottoming and starting to look like it was turning. You had the decent data out of China, not so bad data out of Europe, which means you know things aren't collapsing, which is taken as not so bad news out of Europe. Um, And then the ISM number came out yesterday in the U.S., and that threw cold water on that as well. So um, the other point I'd make, uh, and Lisa, you bring this up, is the price action has not been that violent, right? And, and, And what we think is going on there is in the backdrop, rather quietly, as you know, the Fed has been dramatically expanding their balance sheet. Um, it's not QE, don't call it QE, but the reality is they've added $270 billion and are on pace to add uh, another you know, $600 billion over the next, uh, call it uh, five, six, seven months. So yeah. um, you know, that arguably is masking downside volatility in the short term. Um, but clearly, if we do get a, a complete break of China, you can look for 3 to 5% more downside. 
I had a lot of people messaging me in the last 24 hours worried about a repeat of uh, December 2018. Yeah. And I think to your point, it's the Federal Reserve and the position of monetary policy right now that makes December 2019 very different Correct. to December 2018. As we go into 2020, though, Troy, mm-hmm. your conviction trade now, what is it after the big run-up we've had in risk assets through this year? Yeah, so if you're focused like we are on uh, develop, uh, generating returns that have as low a beta possible and, and very uh, little duration, um, you know, we can continue to focus on consumer-related credit with offset by shorts and high yield and IG. And as we were discussing, you know, on Tom's shows before, I mean, hedges have been brutal this year. I mean, the, the cost of hedging has been off the charts. But if you think of where spreads and absolute yields are now in IG and high yield, we see much less downside on that side of the portfolio. And then the data for the U.S. economy continues to be relatively strong with the consumer balance sheet in relatively good shape. Um, that's our favorite setup. We'd say one of the consensus trades for the industry uh, is that you're finally going to see the dollar weaken next year. Uh, that's been uh, a widowmaker, so to speak, for quite some time. Uh, you know, the viewpoint is with the Fed's uh, expansion of the balance sheet, uh, the dollar's finally topped out. Um, and if growth uh, slows down further in the U.S. or stabilizes overseas, uh, you could finally see a round of dollar weakness. Yeah. Is there ever a widower maker? It's just <laughs> well, a widowmaker. It's yeah, just a widowmaker. Is that a sexist thing, Tom? You know, what am I doing? We, we can yeah. we can discuss the sexism of it uh, offline. Yeah. I will say uh, I want to pick up on the idea of the balance sheet, the Fed's balance sheet. Mm-hmm. I'm looking right now, contracting, 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 reaching a low at the end of August. Yeah, August 28th. Yeah. August 28th, and since then it's added nearly 300 billion dollars. Yep. This is the most under-told story of the market action. We took, we focus on the 100%. trade headlines. So. If the Fed continues to build its balance sheet like this, which is mostly coming through the repo operations, which Mm -hmm. they say is not quantitative easing, is this going to support risk assets indefinitely for as long as they do this? Well, remember, the, the goal now is to get the balance sheet from what the Fed has said, so take that somewhat with a grain of salt, to back up to around 4.4 or 4.5 trillion, and that should be complete by the end of Q2. To be clear, it's right now it's uh, $4.05 trillion. That's right, that's right, yeah, thank, thanks for pointing that out. So, so there's quite a bit of scope to expand further, so that's part of the narrative fueling why um, many think we'll have a risk on Q1, uh, early Q2, and then from there we get back to the framework we were in the most of the post-crisis period, was when QE is running, risk assets do well. When QE stops, you have a correction. Yeah. Bad news becomes bad news, right? And and what happened is the 17-18 period uh, was much more about the fundamentals of fiscal policy, uh, reform out of Washington. And so for like an 18-21 month period, markets were much more focused on that. And then of course the Fed tightening became the uh, the, the driver in Q4. And now Fed expansion is once again the primary driver. We think uh, in late 19 going into 2020. Trigayeski in the hedge fund business, the great fear is market drawdown. You're up at a high, you go down, and it's not worth keeping the hedge fund going because you're down so far you can't come back. We've had year after year in this bull market of market draw ups where they just can't catch up. They just can't catch up. When's the shell game over? Well, Tom, that's a that's a pretty tough term, shell game, my friend. But uh come on, to get up <laughs> look, I'm an institution. Yeah. I'm hammering out 25% this year with an R squared of 1.00 with costs next to nothing. And I understand you keep the game going, but it's the perception is yes, yeah. it's year after year after year. Mm-hmm. When do institutions just say enough? 
Well, look, I mean, first of all, fees have come down pretty significantly in the industry. Correct. You know, okay. our weighted Fair. average fee is about 1.1 and 12. Um, the, well, okay, well, what's a gain if I make a gain? Are we still at 20% capture? No, no. So 1.1 1, 1 and 12, I think the industry is 1. about 1.5 1 and, 5 and 17. Okay. So there's less less incentive fee. But, but the point you make is a good one. I think if any institution looks at the last 10 years and extrapolates that out to infinity, right, along the, the lines of what you were mentioning with the Fed balance sheet, well, then there's no reason to do anything but be long equities, right? But the, but the whole point of asset allocation is that you don't know the future, right? Equities tend to annualize at 8% over a full market cycle. Guess what? This cycle, they've been annualizing much higher than that, right? Which means by definition, the next five, 10 years have to be worse. Now, we could talk about you know the 10-year going to minus two and minus 3% short-end rates and what does that mean for assets. But in a, in a zero-bound world in the US, everyone knows that future returns are gonna be less. Uh, and the other point that's uh, supportive of the hedge fund industry um, is that bond yields are so low, right? It's very hard to make a living in bonds, right? It's certainly anything high quality. Uh, so, so we do think, and again, we, we, we are in the industry, so we're somewhat biased, but if you think of the future, uh, the reality is if hedge funds can comfortably outperform fixed income, even if they trail equities, there's still value to be had there if you have a relatively low beta. Troy, great to see you. Thank yeah. you. Troy Gaisky tr- of SkyBridge. Skybridge Always to catch up. Yes. Okay, John, for anybody joining the conversation this morning, I want to summarize here. President Tinedo, we pretty much thought closed meetings, pressers, photo ops, and that, not. And in the 5 a.m. hour, we enjoyed a 40-minute-plus press conference in the presence of Mr. Stoltenberg. Yeah, and for the market, the focus not on security, the focus on trade. The prospect of a trade deal before the December 15th line in the sand, that is when tariffs are set to go on $160 billion of Chinese imports. The president said there is no deadline. I might wait until after 2020 to get this deal done. Equity futures roll over, so we're down by five-tenths of 1%. I think you've got to start the story at the start of the week, at the start of the month, where issue after issue just slowly started to build up one on top of another. Tariffs on Argentina, on Brazil, retaliation with France, More the ISM just a little yeah, bit yeah. softer, tariff man making a big comeback, and the equity market yeah. making a move lower. The, the Wall Street Journal, somewhat friendly to Republican politics with a scathing editorial today on the president, one year on uh, from tariffs, as Lisa mentioned, December 15th coming up. But there was a lot more in that press conference. Maybe it didn't move markets, but I found absolutely stunning, Lisa, where he basically stated, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this wrong. I don't have it in front of me. I'm the one that has, if, if, if it wasn't for me, there would be a war in Asia, something like that. It I thought that a, just stunning. It highlights yet again he is the one person controlling all of the negotiations. And this is yes. key. So so really, any deal lives or dies on how he feels on any given day. Henrietta Trace uh, joining us now. And a really important conversation because something has shifted. And this is actually uh, notable in markets that they have not yet uh, not yet recognized this. Henrietta Trace of Veda Partners, why are we now talking about escalating trade wars? 
I think we're talking about escalation because the market had become very optimistic that we were going to get not just a small scale pause, but a robust phase one deal. And as I heard from several clients in the run up to Thanksgiving, even an indication that phase two could be completed. Um, so I don't know where a lot of investors are getting those views, but that was something that ran across my desk several times um, in just recent weeks. And I think that it was this building optimism that we were going to get this major trade deal that we don't see any evidence for. Um, And obviously, the president, in our view, has lost his appetite for tariffs against China, but clearly not against Brazil, Argentina, France. Um, And obviously, that does not bode well for, let's say, auto tariffs against the EU or other nations. Henrietta, what makes you think that he's lost his appetite for tariffs against China? Our ongoing conversations with the USDA, with the manufacturing institutions, with farmers, with Senate Republican um, Agriculture Committee staff, the pressure on the administration to not impose tariffs is larger than it ever has been. And I think that's serving as a very effective dampener on the president's willingness to impose additional tariffs specifically on China. U.S. farmers literally cannot take it. And the manufacturers are very concerned about that escalation threat to 30 percent and have not factored that into their uh, supply chain expectations and will not accept it. You mentioned autos in Europe. Does the same approach apply to Europe or is it a different approach we're about to see? This is what's happening right now with the digital tax is entirely different and interestingly an extraordinary unifier on Capitol Hill. If you ask any member of the Senate Finance Committee, they'll tell you that they absolutely hate when the European Union thinks that they can tax any American company. That goes all the way back to Apple in Ireland so many years ago. So this digital services tax is something that the administration has support for both Democrats and Republicans to rebuff, and I expect that they will continue to, but that's a tariff on French wine, cheese, etc., not on automobiles. Be careful now. French wine, cheese... Don't, you know, right. the important things, the important things we're zeroing in there and what matters. Henrietta, to your good point and with your wonderful knowledge of Congress, does Congress believe this president is acting by himself as he alluded to multiple times in this press conference? I think that when it comes to trade policy, that's absolutely the case. I mean, he's obviously got a very competent team in USTR, Bob Lighthizer, and he's surrounded. I didn't hear them in this press conference. I heard a president (laughs) said, it's me. Uh, Right, of course. And I wouldn't expect him to name anybody unless they're physically in the room with him and he can sort of pass off some of the pressure on them. That's historically his tactic. But it would be impossible for President Trump to pull any of these tariffs off without the knowledge and um, ground laying that USTR Lighthizer has given to him. Henrietta, you think that the markets are correct then in being optimistic that we're not going to see the December 15th tariffs, correct? My odds are 50 percent that we will see the December 15th tariffs uh, at some point, which means that I don't think we're going to see it specifically on December 15th. Um, Y'all have been reading my research for a while. You know that 50 percent is very bullish for me. It means that I am not expecting to see the tariffs um, overwhelmingly. That is down from my odds of 75% and higher over the summer when the president was very enthusiastic about tariffs. So I think the market's appropriate to assume that the December 15th tariffs will not happen that day. As you guys were discussing earlier, it's a totally manufactured date. It has no relevance to any underlying key deadline. It's just something that USTR Lifehizer created, as he has for so many of these other tariff lists. So December 15th could easily, in my opinion, become February 15th or 
or right. March 15th or what have you. Um, but that doesn't mean that the tariffs are going to go on December 15th. I'd also like to say to investors, don't expect for whole baskets of tariffs to come off in the next two weeks, which is what I think a lot of investors have been pricing in. And I don't think that's appropriate. What's the tipping point? What's the issue, the pivotal issue that would shift those odds back to something more substantial uh, in favor of the tariffs on December 15th? I, I would be really heartened if the administration signaled at all to the House or the Senate that they wanted them to stop taking these very poisonous votes, poisonous to Beijing anyway, votes on Hong Kong human rights and democracy or the Uyghur bill that the House is going to pass via unanimous consent after the close this evening. Those kinds of small pieces and the knowledge that Senators Rubio and Kennedy and a whole handful of others are trying to restrict Chinese investment or U.S. pension investments in China. Chinese companies, et cetera, that tit for tat, you know, it's not so much one thing as a, a tiny compendium of so many small things that leads us to have huge concerns about reaching a phase one deal at all. Our odds there are only 15%. And those really started to come together at 15%, you know, very low rates when the poultry deal was reached. Of course, there were good reasons for the poultry deal to be reached, but having it done separately and outside of the phase one deal was the first in a string of indicators that pointed in the wrong direction for a phase one deal in our view. Henry de Trace, always great to get your view on this program. Veda Partners Director of Economic Policy, joining us on the latest in the trade dispute. It was a distressing email that came across the other day which was that the addiction of Wall Street is retiring. Let me frame this, John, and you can bring in Mr. Gartman. There is an acclaimed single photo of the collapse of Lehman Brothers, and it is the young troops with their backs against the glass wall of that skyscraper, and their screens and their Bloombergs are all in front of them, and there's the research capability of Lehman at the time, which was magnificent. And there on the screen, as they listen to their fate, is the Gartman letter. That is the dirty little secret of Wall Street. They may love them, they may hate them, but boy, do they all read them, and it will end soon. And after more than 30 years, it will be retired itself. The Gartman I don't believe letter it, but continue. publisher, Dennis Gartman, joins us on the phone. Dennis, walk us through the, deci- the decision. Oh, well, thank you for the, for the nice introduction. Very, very pleasant of you all. It's been a hard decision, but uh, quite honestly, the, the, simply, the simple fact is the getting of information has become so ubiquitous. You guys, everybody else, has, are, are able to get out the news so much more efficiently, so much more regularly, so much more quickly, and in many respects so much better than I, I started. When I started this 35 years ago, I used to tell people that I got this China People's Daily mailed to me three days late, and I was still two days ahead of everybody else. Now everybody gets the China People's Daily or the South China Morning Post on their email every morning. So keeping up with the news and being ahead, and that was always my forte, was to try to be ahead of what everybody else understood has become almost impossible. And finally, I'm almost 70 years old. Oh, <laughs> after, God, after getting up, <laughs> Well, after getting up every morning for 35 years and on every business day and writing for five hours, my hands are tired. And then finally... Yeah. Uh, having gone from a four handicap to a fourteen, there we go. Now we come to the truth. 
Yeah, that's probably closer to the truth. Well, but Dennis, you raise a really interesting point, the speed of markets and how much that's shifted and how everyone has a glut of information that they're facing, an onslaught every morning. Has that made markets better or worse from your perspective? I think it's made it it better. I think it's made it more difficult. Uh, But I do, information is always better. In in the old days, uh, 25 years ago, I used to say that my job was to be the sieve of information. Uh, I, I read as much as I could get my hands on, read different newspapers, read different news wires, listened to different news broadcasts, and tried to hold out what I thought was the important pieces and say, here, look at this. This is what this means. Now there's just so much information and so many people pointing out to the, the, the same thing. Here, look at this. This is what this means. That the competition is difficult. Yeah. The markets are far more liquid. The markets are far more efficient than they've ever been. It's just a little more difficult to do what I do. And so, you know, there comes a time. Dennis, one of your great charms is you actually show your recommendations in the back of your letter. And when you uh, go down in flames, you're the first to report it (laughs) over there. Detractors reporting it um, as well. You have a dearth of equity wisdom right now, long or short. Can you give us a game on the stock market into next year after up 25-ish percent this year? It ain't going to be up 25% next year. That we know for certain. It's probably going to be down, and rather abundantly, I'm afraid. The, the war that's going on over trade is, is already ill and ugly. The sad thing is it's probably going to get more ill and more ugly, and, and any, any inhibitions on world trade, yeah. foreign trade, is going to be deleterious to stock prices. Plus, people who really have no business trading, no business investing, and our novices right. think that it's so easy to make money, and it's not that easy. And then when, when the novices become the, the experts, that's when okay. things go awry. One final question, Dennis. Of course, we're going to have Mr. Gartman back here within his retirement, probably from the 15th hole of one of the eight golf courses he plays <laughs> in Republican Virginia. You tear the president to shreds this morning yeah. on round two or round five, whatever it is, on tariffs. How can run-of-the-mill Republicans support this guy if Dennis Gartman, who hits the GOP golf ball, says this guy is so wrong on trade? It, it is difficult, isn't it? He, he has, the, the Republican Party has ceased to be the Republican Party. It's now the Trump, the Trump Party. And, and lesser Republicans are fearful of, of taking him on. I, I'm lucky enough to be able to say you're wrong because I don't have to fear what the president has to say other than positions that I put on in the market. But if I were a Republican senator, I'd be scared to death about what the president might say because Republicans are supposed to be believers in free trade mm-hmm. and, and, and un- deregulated trade, freer trade around the world, and we have become a, a party of regulated trade and, and uh, yeah. protected trade. And sadly, that's just not who we are. And, and so the senators and congressmen are running fearful of them and, and are being quiet when they should be loud and saying this is not who yeah. we are. The grind of 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. to write the note will end, but Dennis Gartman will be more than visible, particularly here on Bloomberg um, Surveillance. Mr. Gartman, thank you. And, of course, Tom. we protect the copyright of our guests. Margie Patel, good morning. It has been a double-digit year. Did you get your fair share? 
Yes, we did. Uh, amazingly, even in the high-yield market, double-digit returns were, were given. So it was a great year all around, stocks and bonds. What happens after a great year in bonds? I would guess our listeners and me, 89.7% of my focus is on the year after in equities. What happens after a bang-up year in bonds? Well, I think they will basically look for just the return of the coupon income and not so much capital appreciation. So mid-single digits, kind of the best scenario for 2020. So, Margaret, we saw, you know, with the sell-off in the fourth quarter last year, it appeared that a lot of people had cash on the sidelines and were willing to jump back in if you take a look at the performance in 2019. Do you think that's the case this year? As you talk to your clients, do they have cash and maybe they're just waiting for a pullback in the market that maybe we got like a year ago? Yes, cash and hoping for that big pullback. I think this is a replay of last year. A big dip, a great time to jump in because the fundamentals are still pretty good. So if I were to jump in, I guess the question is, how much risk do I want to take? Do I want to you know, go into the defensive sectors, whether it's real estate, REITs, consumer staples, or do I want to take on a little more risk, say, in technology or some of the industrials? Well, I think a barbell approach. I think the interest rate sensitive sectors like utilities, like some of the REITs, are going to do well because we had a little rate push up. I think we'll see rates push down against next year. And in the equity market, I think we have to still look for growthy, sustainable growth sectors because the economy will mm-hmm. be a lot slower next year. Is a dividend growth a yield equivalent? It looks very bond-like to me, Tom, because the returns are about where you'll get an investment-grade bonds. What do you model for dividend growth? Do you have a collar that you work with? Like if it's too high a dividend growth, your radar goes up, and certainly if there's not enough dividend growth, you don't like it. Is there a Margie Patel collar to that statistic? No, I like to look at total return, and you know the capital growth is the dog, and the dividend is really the tail. So I don't like to put too much emphasis oh, on the dividend. Yeah. That's CFA level three. There. <laughs> exactly. So, Mark, it appears that the you know the market's kind of discounting a, a one rate cut maybe in 2020. Do you think that's enough to kind of support some of the riskier assets in the you know the credit side and the equity side? I think the Fed having a steady state policy, doing nothing, or making a mild rate cut because rates do look a little on the high side compared to global uh, rates and the slow growth. But I think as long as they don't do too much, that market will be very attractive. Bloomberg Surveillance Worldwide, we bring your Margie Patel of Wells Capital Management. We await comments by Mr. McCraw and Mr. Trump. Paul? Sure. Margie, you know, it's interesting. It's been such a great year for bonds, for equities. You know, it's it's some of the people that we talk to are saying, geez, you really have to moderate your outlook for 2020, maybe even kind of a mid single digit return type go environment. Go to cash. Is, is that or in Tom's case, triple leverage cash? What is your sense as to maybe expectations for 2020? Well, I think mid-digit returns would be just fine after the what the returns we've had this year and with inflation being low and interest rates being low. So if it's a 5% year, that won't be bad. It's still positive, yeah. and the growth is still positive in the economy. Margie, if we don't speak to you before the end of the year, thank you so much for your support of Bloomberg Surveillance and your wisdom and perspective on capturing a greater yield. Margie Patel with Wells Capital Management. Uh, in uh, Boston. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.